Engaging Leader, episode 122, How to Help People Change, featuring Dr. Art Markman. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. To create lasting behavior change, it's crucial to understand how the brain's habit system works. Then you can develop specific techniques to leverage the power of the brain rather than fighting against it. Psychologist Art Markman joins us today to provide insight and practical advice for creating sustainable behavior change in the people we lead. He's the author of two previous books, Smart Thinking and Habits of Leadership, and his newest book is Smart Change, Five Tools to Create New and Sustainable Habits in Yourself and Others. Art is on the faculty of the University of Texas. He's a consultant to companies such as Procter & Gamble, and he writes regularly for Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Psychology Today. Dr. Art Markman, welcome to Engaging Leader. It is great to be here. Thanks so much. Dr. Markman, what are the great hurdles to behavior change? Fundamentally, the problem with trying to change your behavior is, first of all, we have all of these habits that drive what we do on a daily basis. And... Those habits are basically memories that we have laid down over days and weeks and months of repeating those behaviors. And memory works automatically. So your memory really wants to please you. And so it throws out there what it is that it thinks you should be doing when you get into a situation in which you have repeatedly done something in the past. And And because memory happens automatically, these habits happen automatically. And so you end up engaging these behaviors without even thinking about it, which, by the way, most of the time is a great thing. If you think about getting up in the morning and showering and getting yourself ready for for the day, you can do all of that without having to think about the details of it. So you can plan your day out. So it's not that we don't want habits. It's just that every once in a while, those habits end up getting in the way of of our ability to be effective. And so we need to change those habits. And that's one problem we have. On top of that problem, the human mind and particularly our system for constructing preferences is strongly wired to want to do things that feel right in the short term. We want to do the thing that feels right right now, which is why you know, outside of the realm of business, that piece of chocolate cake looks so good, even though you're you're really trying to watch your weight. Why um, people end up buying the fancier car, what, the, the fancier car than they needed, uh, even though they know deep down they're supposed to be saving for their kids' uh, college <laughs> education. And so those those short term draws are very powerful and tend to pull us in the direction of doing things that may not be in our long term best interests. And so. That those two factors combine in ways that, that can make it hard for us to change behavior when we really want to. So we're going to talk today about ways to help others change and change behavior. And some of these ways are going to sound really good by themselves, but you in your book say over and over again, any one of these is probably not going to be effective by itself. Why is that? One of the things that happens, one of the things you have to understand is that, that behavior change really requires reprogramming your brain. And in particular, 
my approach to helping people to think about changing behavior, both their own behavior and other people's behavior, is to start by understanding the way the brain works. And really briefly, there are two systems inside the brain that I call the go system and the stop system. The go system is evolutionarily really old. It is very well adapted to what it does. And what, what the go system does is it finds elements of the environment that engage uh, behaviors that you've, that you've performed in the past. It activates goals that you have. And once those goals are active, you start seeking out things that are going to help you to achieve those goals. And then you go for it and you act. The GO system works extraordinarily well. Now, every once in a while, you engage a goal to do something and then realize, I really don't want to do that. At that point, there's another set of mechanisms in the brain that involves circuits in the frontal lobes of the brain, areas of the brain just above your eyes, that uh, those areas of the brain inhibit or stop the behavior that you started to perform. And so I call that the stop system. The stop system is newer evolutionarily. It doesn't function quite as efficiently as the go system. And in some ways, you wouldn't want to have a set of brakes that overpower the go system because then you could create a situation in which you never do anything, right? Because you'd constantly be saying, I should do this, and the stop system would say no, and you'd be paralyzed. So, so there's good reasons for the stop system to be somewhat weaker than the go system is. So here's the problem. A lot of times when we try to change behavior, we often set ourselves an impossible task in which we say, here's this thing I've been doing. I want to stop doing that. In the, in the work context, for example, one of the things that comes up almost all the time now is people saying, I got to stop checking my email so often. Right. Now, the fundamental problem with framing the problem in that way is that if I say I've got to stop doing this thing, then all I have at my disposal is a couple of ounces of brain material right above my eyes that are going to try to stop me from doing this thing that I'm constantly being called upon to do. So it's very ineffective to ride the brakes all the time. So rather than riding the brakes, what we really want to do is to engage that go system, but to retrain it to a new set of behaviors that are going to be that are going to lead to more desirable long-term outcomes. So, so then to get back to your question, right? Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is to reprogram the Go system. In order to make that happen, we need to do two things. One is to set up structures so that we can engage a new set of goals. And then the other is we want to shore up the stop system so that when it is impaired uh, or, or uh, isn't functioning as well as we'd like it to, that, that we have as much opportunity as possible to stop ourselves from doing the wrong thing. And that is really the reason why we want to bring a series of tools to bear on the problem of changing behavior, both our own and other people's. So as an example... One of the ways to help others change that leaders often will turn to is is what you how you describe it as making good behavior cheap and bad behavior expensive. And I see leaders all the time just want to basically apply incentives or penalties to get employees to f- adopt a certain behavior or stop. Or, or, or stop a bad behavior, especially in the area of, of health and fitness. And sure. they, they assume that, that the, just the pure economics of it is going to be enough to make the change happen. 
Right. And and actually what I what I say in the book is is to make desirable behaviors easy and undesirable behaviors hard. Because cheap and expensive, you know, puts the economic frame on it. And I think one of the things that happens is um, from an economic standpoint, you know, we, we say, okay, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reward you if you go to the gym this number of times. Um, and, and that can help a little bit. We certainly are somewhat sensitive to reward structures in the environment, but we are quite sensitive to just what's easy for us to do. And, you know, I, I tell people, look, you want to get people to climb the stairs more at work, you know, slow the elevator down a little bit. <laughs> I mean, people hate waiting for the elevator. So if you make it faster for people to get up three flights of stairs by walking than by taking the elevator, more people are going to start walking the stairs. You know, the, you're still ADA compliant for those people who need the elevator. You're not ruining their day, but you're making it just a little bit easier for people to make the decision to take the stairs rather than the elevator. And that's a, that's a kind of a simple example. But the idea is put stuff out there in people's environments that makes it easy for them to do the right thing. Hmm. Yeah, another example that you share involves tobacco and smoking and just making it harder for people to engage in that behavior. Don't don't allow any smoking on campus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, smoking is fascinating to me because it's it's certainly a um, a short-term desirable thing for those people who are smokers. I mean, once you start smoking, it really grips your behavior. And, and, you know, in the 1960s, a little over half of American adults were smokers. By, the, by, by two or three years ago, that number had dropped to a little under 20%. So it's, it's an enormous public health win. And almost none of that came out of messaging. None of that really had to do with reminding people that cigarettes are bad for you. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with two big factors, one of which was the environment. So we've made it virtually impossible to smoke in public buildings and, and on the campuses of, um, of, of large companies. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic, for example, banned smoking on, on all of its campuses. Likewise, actually, uh, any, any university that, that takes funds from the National Cancer Institute can't uh, have smoking on its campus. And so if you've got to make a 10-minute walk to get your cigarette, you're just much likely to to grab that cigarette. That's one piece of it. It's making the, the behavior, the, the, the undesirable behavior hard to do. And then the other thing actually that, that's important in, in the case of smoking, which relates to another one of the elements that I talk about in the book, is that we've brought a lot of social disapproval to bear on it. Um, I, in the book, I tell the story that as a kid, I was involved in, in one of these father-son youth groups where we would, we would go and, and uh, every month and the kids would make some vaguely Native American-inspired craft and the dads would stand <laughs> around talking. And, uh, and, and about half the dads, you know, this was the early 70s, about half the dads were standing around smoking in front of the kids. And, and that was fine, right? That was just what you did. And I just can't imagine in, you know, in 2015 uh, an environment in which there'd be a bunch of six and seven-year-old kids standing around doing a craft and the dads would be standing around smoking. If somebody desperately needed a cigarette that much, they'd make them walk three blocks away, have their cigarette, and then you know, down a, a, an ounce of binaca on their way back <laughs> uh, to the group. So you know, it's, just, it's, it's a completely different social world as well. So, so, you know, and that social environment also plays a huge role in, in the behaviors that people end up carrying out. Another of your tips for how to help others change is to suggest goals. And that seems 
elementary, but you talk about the value of actually showing leaders engaging in a behavior in a visible way. Tell us about that. Yeah, so so there's there's two elements to this that are really important. The first is it seems elementary that we could suggest goals to people, but the fact is that most of the time when people are trying to change their behavior, they pick the wrong kinds of goals. So as we talked about earlier, you know, when when you think about email, we set goals that are often negative goals, like I got to check my email less often. And what that does is it, it puts the entire burden on the stop system rather than trying to create positive goals. So we want to encourage people to be creating goals that relate to actions that they can perform because only those actions that you perform are things that will actually influence the go system and reprogram that. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, one of the great ways of doing that is by having people in leadership roles model that behavior. So if you think about email, for example, um, if, if you're trying to get the people in your company to check their email less often, then you had better not answer your email frequently in, you know, in the eight minutes after it was sent to you. Because yes. then what that's doing is sending the message to everybody there, well, I, you may be telling me to check my email less often, but you're on it all the time. Um, and so you, you want to model that behavior and you even want to visibly help people to see what your goals are. So for example, one of the things I tell people is most, most people get to work and, and their best work time of the day is actually that first 90 minutes after they get to work. And what people do when they get to work often is they sit down and the first thing they do is they fire up their email program and they spend, you know, 45 minutes plowing through the previous night's emails, which means that they take, they soak up at least half of their best work time of the day doing a task that does not require your best effort. So what I tell people to do is, you know, let's, let's turn the cell phone into a force for good rather than for evil and, um, and, and get to your office and set a timer for 10 minutes. Turn on your email program after that and you have 10 minutes to triage your email and answer the three emails that are most important. And then after that 10 minutes is up, shut your email program down and spend the next 70 to 80 minutes doing something that's actually important. And then you can go, by, go about the rest of your day. But what's nice about that is if you follow that strategy, now in your first 90 minutes at work, you get 80 minutes worth of work done. And, and that's not happening for people right now. And if, if the leaders in the company visibly do that, if they, if they actually announce that's what they're doing, if they actually do that, if you actually notice that you're not receiving replies from them until later in the morning, those are all ways of highlighting this is a set of behaviors that you should be carrying out. And we believe it so strongly that the, that the leaders of our company are doing that. Let me throw out another type of goal that I see a lot of companies pursuing and to talk about how this might uh, work. A lot of companies want to get their employees to execute, to make decisions faster and execute faster, to just break through a lot of the sluggishness and inertia. Any ideas for how you would show leaders engaging in that behavior? Yeah. So one of the things that you can do there is, is, I mean, there's several things you can do. One is to, is to have uh, leaders actually, you know, request, right, you know, a lot of times what will happen is you'll get emails that, that are asking you questions um, as a leader. Rather than answering that question, 
it, it would be useful to, to go back to the people who sent that email and say, look, what I want you to do is, is, to, is to tell me what your solution to the problem is and start with that, right? Let's, you know, let's, let, you know, start with just give me your solution to the problem and we'll start from there. And then after you've done that a few times to actually then go an extra step and say, okay, I want you to come up with a solution to the problem and try it and then tell me what happens, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and really take yourself out of the equation. Because, because if, if in fact you're going to get an email and then give somebody a, uh, an answer, then they're going to say, well, what I really am supposed to do here is to get your answer and then implement that. And now you become the bottleneck. So if you really want people to, to be solving problems on their own, you've got to kick things back to them and say, well, okay, what are you going to do? And, and the reason for, for having a few times where you hear their response first is just, you know, to, to give them a little bit of feedback on the kinds of solutions that you think are likely to be successful. But once you're, once you're confident in that, you know, just kick things back to people and say, look, you're, go do it. Hmm. Okay, I like that. Well, another way to help others change that you talk about in the book is giving the right feedback. And you talk, for one thing, about the importance of focusing the feedback on the process of the change, not simply the target outcome. Why is that so important? Well, actually, this relates to your last question in certain ways, which is, um, you know, ultimately what we want in the way of behavior change is for there to be something that is generative, that is something that where people can actually uh, continue to perform a set of actions without your supervision later. Now, if all you ever do is to focus on outcomes, then people are just going to be, you know, doing actions that try to approach the desired outcome. Um, and, and, you know, I, in, the, in the book, I talk about this with respect to something like weight loss, which is outside of business, but I think the example makes it easy to understand. Every time that somebody says something like, I got to lose 10 pounds, if they go ahead and do all kinds of crazy things and lose 10 pounds, now what? Right, you've lost ten pounds, but you you don't have a process for doing things afterwards. And so, what you do after that is you go back to eating the way you always did, and and put the weight back on. And now you get to yo-yo back and forth. Absolutely. If what you want is something sustainable, then you want to give people feedback that focuses on well, how are you going to do this, right? And that's why you know if we think about things like how do we make people. Um, make decisions faster, uh, implement those decisions faster. Well, what you're doing is giving people feedback that says not, I'm going to answer this question for you, which is an outcome feedback, but rather, you know, go ahead and do this. And I'm going to critique you a little bit on, on the process early on, and I'm going to refine that. But, but ultimately, what I'm trying to do is to get you to the point where you stop asking me these questions and just start doing stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the process. And that's the thing that can be carried forward later. Yeah, that's interesting. And on the weight loss uh, example, the motivation as well, when the, the whole time when you're so focused on losing weight and then you you do meet that goal and then you afterwards you've met the goal and so you've lost the motivation and you start putting the weight back on, it seems like if the if if the focus can be more on the process the healthy things that you're doing that will eventually lead to a healthier weight that your feet if your feedback can be focusing on the good things that would come out of that along the way besides just this outcome of losing weight so 
uh, you, you notice that someone is actually eat, eating healthier. They're eating more salads, for example. Mm-hmm. And you can give people feedback on that and, and those short-term benefits they're getting by eating that way. They they're, they're probably feel more energy in the day. Their, their mood is going to be better. They're going to feel less sluggish than when they have a burger and fries and a chocolate malt for lunch. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, you really want to be focused on you did all these great things. And, and you're doing it in, you know, you're hoping as a side effect that there are going to be some great outcomes that come from that. But the, but the beauty of it is at no point are you really focused on those. So there's no point at which you're supposed to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's just how you do it, right? That's how I live my life is, you know, I'm going to have that salad. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to eat, you know, more plant-based foods or fewer really heavy meats or whatever it is, you know, and you're doing these things that are, that are, that are, have the great long-term outcome, but you're never really thinking about it in those terms. So it gets back to what you said in the beginning that the, the behavior change is difficult both because of the, the habits, but also because of our focus on short-term benefits. It's the, the delayed gratification, delayed long-term benefits. And our, logically, we realize those are important, but in our day-to-day actions, we prove that we tend to adopt whatever is going to feel good in the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, this is why it's so hard to do effective behavior change in organizations because when we try to change behavior in organizations, we often, we often switch from all of the work that we ourselves would do when we're trying to change our own behavior and we now focus instead on messaging. If I could just figure out the right way to tell you what to do, <laughs> then you would do it. And, and I always like to tell people that you know the ultimate statement of here are the things that you should do and here are the things you shouldn't do um, comes, comes out of the Ten Commandments. And if you, if you look at the context of that, you know, here we have this document and the document says that God came down and gave this list of 10 things that you're supposed to do and not do. And uh, most of those, by the way, if you excise a couple of them that have to do with follow this religion rather than that one are all about the trade-off between short-term and long-term, right? That guy who just annoyed you, don't kill him. <laughs> the, the, uh, the really pretty thing that somebody else owns, don't steal it the very attractive spouse, the person living next door, leave him or her alone. And I think what's crucial about the Ten Commandments is that they're a failure in that the human species still does all the things that are on that list. So I like to point out to people that if God can't come down and tell you don't do these things and have you listen, what makes you think that you are going to be able to say to people who work for you, do or don't do this and have people listen? Hmm. And, And so it's not about the message. And it's not about the medium of that message. It's really about the, the, using the principles of changing behavior to help the people around you to change in the most effective way. Yeah, so it's working more of these levers That's to right. support that change. Yeah, exactly. On that topic of feedback, you also differentiate between incremental changes and sort of a, a, a an overall mindset. So you want to give positive feedback that reinforces an incremental mindset. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, so the, you know, part of, part of what you, you want to do is to remember that a lot of the actions that people are performing when they're changing behavior are, are things that you're ultimately trying to get them to create habits about, which means that the specific actions actually matter a lot, right? You, you want people to actually do a set of actions 
in the same situation, you know, all the time so that the, the most desirable behaviors simply become part of the way that people live their life. And, you know, if, if people are only ever focused, it's, it's not that we should never focus on the big picture. About once a year, you want everybody in your company to really ask themselves, am I hitting my targets? You know, and, and are there subtle changes I need to make in my, in my behavior in order to be more effective at what I do? But most of the time, you want to keep people focused on, am I doing the right things on a day-to-day basis whose accumulated effort is going to lead to the, the, the big contribution that I hope to make by the end of the year? One more thing I think would be good to talk about, and, and we're, we're basically only scratching the surface here, but you talk about the importance of engaging in conversations as an important step in helping other people change. Why is it important to not just push information at people, but have those kind of, kind of conversations? You know, there's, there's several reasons why conversations matter a lot. For one thing, our goals in organizations need to be shared in a communal way. You know, uh, human beings succeed not because we're particularly imposing physical creatures as as individuals, but really because we are so good at working together in groups. And conversation is actually the mechanism that we use for sharing information and for sharing goals with other people. The two-way part of the conversation is important because if I just talk at you, it's actually not clear what gets through and what sticks. But what we know from all the research on conversation is that if we engage in a two-way conversation, then we leave that conversation thinking more similarly than we did when we started that conversation. Because in order for us to really understand each other, at some moment in that conversation, we had to be able to think about this topic in exactly the same way. And so conversations actually help to synchronize the thinking of the people within the organization. And so, and, and, and that, hap- that happens much more effectively through conversation than it does through, um, you know, just talking at people. And, and really, ultimately, what you're trying to create in any organization is what I call a neighborhood. You, you want to have people um, who, are, who really do for each other um, things that, that, you know, that go beyond the economic value of that in the moment. So if you think about the relationships you have in your life, um, there are strangers in your life where, you know, you go to the store, the people at the, at the local grocery store are strangers to you. You want, you want a dozen eggs. You've got to put cash on the barrel in order to get those dozen eggs. It's a fee for service transaction in the moment. Um, but, but your neighbors are people where you balance things out over the long term. So if you need some help right now, you know, you walk out of your house in the morning, you got a flat tire, your neighbor comes over and helps you change the tire. You don't whip out a $20 bill to pay your neighbor off. Right. You know, but, but you might drive your, your neighbor's kid to school the next week or, you know, bring them a banana bread or something, right? I mean, you know, you over the long term you balance stuff out. And and that the way that you create those kinds of neighborhoods is through interaction. Uh, those kinds of conversations really, really build up the the the, uh, the neighborhood, and so it's so important to engage in those conversations on a regular basis if what you're trying to do is to really synchronize the organization. So, if you're trying to create an organizational change, you may do some things that involve mass media, where you are, let's say, using video to tell some stories. 
you're maybe you've got some key messages that are, are, are clearly presented, but you need to look for opportunities to talk to people and talk, and let people talk to themselves on a more local basis. So this is really about uh, conversations that are these local dialogues where people have a chance to express what they're thinking and maybe even influence the overall organizational direction. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's just important. It's important for there to be conversations, and it's important for those conver- if those conversations are going to continue, for there to be some evidence that the things that people said were heard. Right. I mean, there there needs to be. You know, if 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 people keep coming to 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 you as a leader with with things that are actionable, that, that and you consistently don't do anything about them, well, people will stop talking because they realize that 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 there's no that the conversation actually has no function. But I think that you know it's it's really important to to be engaging in those local conversations, and it's you know it's valuable as well because I think there's there's a, there's an opportunity these days for people to you know. Companies are creating more and more social media within the company, particularly in large organizations, where it becomes easier and easier to believe that you're keeping track of what everybody's doing without actually engaging with them directly. And it's it's those those smaller group interactions, one-on-one, small groups, that that really uh, help to bind people together and feel like they're valued parts uh, of an organization. We are talking to Art Markman, author of Smart Change, Five Tools to Create New and Sustainable Habits in Yourself and Others. Dr. Markman, you don't just write books and teach at the University of Texas. You also are a consultant to companies and organizations across the, com- the country. Tell us about what, what kind of work you do in those settings. Sure. So um, my training is in cognitive psychology. I, I study the way people think. I'm interested in reasoning and decision making and motivation. And those are all issues that that companies face all the time, both internally in trying to make employees work as effectively as possible, as well as externally in, in doing customer-focused work. And, uh, and so for those people who want to bring more cognitive science into their organizations, I come in and, and help companies either on specific projects that are where understanding decision-making or understanding motivation might be more useful. And then, and then there are times where there are organizations that just want to train uh, the people who are working there to, to understand a little bit more of the science in order to make the work that they do more effective. And, and I also do work like that. So in other words, you have leaders in your company or maybe uh, innovators who might f- be much more effective in their work if they understand the human dimension of organizations more or they understand what makes people tick from a cognitive science perspective. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, have, thanks for using the, the term human dimension of organizations. So not only do I serve as a private consultant, I'm also the director of a program at the University of Texas called the Human Dimensions of Organizations. And what we do both in our master's program and, and in the other courses we teach is similar to what I do as a consultant. But broadly, what we use are a variety of disciplines that form the basis of the liberal arts, the humanities, the social and the behavioral sciences to help organizations understand their people better because it's it often the problems in organizations aren't technological problems they're not uh, the, the, it's, it's not that, that the technology that you're using doesn't work properly it's that the people 
um, are not communicating effectively or are not working as effectively. Diagnosing those problems and figuring out what to do to make them go better takes a lot more expertise in the human condition underlying business. And, and that's something I'm interested in both as a consultant and in the work I do as the director of the HDO program. Dr. Markman, how can people find out more about you and your book and your work? Well, I, luckily, academics are really overrepresented on the web. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, a simple Google search for Art Markman works. But, um, but you can find me on Twitter at AB Markman, uh, Facebook. I have a, one of those author pages. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Always love to get connections from people on LinkedIn at Art Markman. Um, I am. Uh, I have a radio show out of Austin, Texas, called Two Guys on Your Head. That's that's also on Twitter and Facebook and TwoGuysOnYourHead.org. You can find out more about my books at SmartThinkingBook.com. Smart Thinking was my first book. Smart Change is is the second, but there's information about those books on that website. Uh, I blog for Psychology Today and Fast Company and sometimes Harvard Business Review. And if you're interested in the Human Dimensions of Organizations program, you can find information at that at hdo.utexas.edu. Art Markman, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Oh, thanks so much. It was really great to be here today. We'll provide links to the book Smart Change, as well as the other information that Art mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 122 as in episode 122. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 